Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Hello, everybody, and thank you so very much for joining me once again. Today, my guest is Ron Sanderson. Welcome to the show, Ron. Well, thanks so much for having me on your show today. I'm sure California is nice and sunny compared to horrible rain in Michigan. Oh, my goodness. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that. I want everybody to know that Ron is a pastor. He is an author. He's written several books. We're going to be speaking today about his most recent, well, I guess it's his recent book. Maybe t- I believe it is. I know you're working on another. And the name of this book is called A Parent's Guide to Autism, Practical Advice, Biblical Wisdom. And we're going to be talking a lot today about autism. That is our subject. But before we get into the actual meat of this of this podcast, you mentioned that you're in Michigan. You're, I think you're in Rochester. Is that where you are? Yeah, we're in Rochester Hills. Yep. Yes. Well, I thought just just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, and then we'll talk all about what your subject is today. So tell us about yourself, Ron. So when I was diagnosed with autism in 1982, only 1 in 10,000 children were diagnosed with autism. Now it's 1 in every 54 children are diagnosed. So very little was known about autism at the time. And my development began normal. I said my first word, mommy, at nine months. Then I went through a time of regression from being able to say mommy to only mom, mom. And I went from being able to have eye contact when I heard my name to zero eye contact. My mom knew there was something drastically different between me and my brother Chuck and Steve. So she took me to the pediatrician at age two, right when the regression was happening. And the pediatrician said, men are like fine wine, you have to give them time. Women are like flowers, they blossom quicker. So my mom knew that time was the essence. She immediately got me an intense speech therapy. And I was intense speech therapy all the way from age two to age 16. And when I was seven, that's when I was diagnosed with autism. And they diagnosed me with autism because of my speech delay, my inability to interact with other children, and my isolation. And my mom was an art teacher, and she quit her job as an art teacher and became a full-time rod teacher. And using art, mm-hmm. using visualization, she helped me be able to graduate from college at Oral Roberts University with bachelor's degrees in psychology and theology and a three nine grade point average. I went on to get my Master of Divinity from Oral Roberts with a perfect 4.0, and then I got married December 7, 2012, and I got married on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, and having autism, I came in like a kamikaze, and then my <laughs> daughter was born at 3.13 a.m., the Detroit area code for phone, on March 20th, 2016, when I got home from um, her, my wife's giving the delivery, there was waiting for me the first copy of my first book, A Parent's Guide to Autism, Co-Advice, Biblical Wisdom, and now I've gone on to write 
two more books. My third book just came out May twenty or yeah May twenty fifth, and it's Views from the Spectrum: A Window into the Life and Faith of Your Neurodivergent Child. And I'm almost done with my fourth book. And during the time of COVID, the only good thing was that I was able to spend more time in my cave of writing and be able to write nine out of twelve chapters of the book already. The book will be probably about two hundred fifty pages, or as um, writers say, the word count will be about 80,000 words. So I've been able to accomplish all these things because of love acceptance from my parents and the different connections that God's brought along our way, whether it was a speech therapist saying I'll spend extra time with Ron because his speech is so delayed or a teacher who was willing to work with me and saw the gift of track and cross country and say I'm going to help him become a great track runner, which helped me get full ride to college for track and cross country. But there's been many connections along the way, many people who've come along my path who've helped make it get a reality, my being able to do what I do today. And even my mom, without her, I wouldn't be able to do what I do today without her taking care of Ms. Taylor. Um, my wife being able to work at home during COVID gave me extra time to do writing and many other things. Wow. Wow. I hope everybody was able to grasp and appreciate all that you just said because that alone is truly remarkable, truly remarkable. And I know you have a lot of people to thank about this. I mean, I, you know, you've mentioned your mom, and we're going to be talking a little bit about her. But... Wow, I must just say that this is really inspiring, Ron, and I, I feel privileged that that you're joining me. I think it would be important. I think, oh, shoot, I'm so sorry. My, my phone just went off, and it's not supposed to happen. Okay, I'm so sorry. Let's start with some definitions. Let's start with the definition of autism, just so that people may get a glimpse of what autism means if you could be so kind. Yeah, so my definition of autism is a different neurological way of interpreting information. So a lot of children, I like to say, are like bottled water. They get shaken up, stirred up. They learn how to regulate their emotions to calm down. I'm more like Mountain Dew. I get shaken up, stirred up, kaboom. (laughs) My emotions will go from zero to 60 faster than any GM car or any Chrysler (laughs) or Ford living in Michigan, I like to use a car illustration. And it's also repetitive behavior. We love the same routine. So we love to do the same activities or eat the same food every day. And for me, my repetitive behavior was memorizing the Bible verses. And when I was younger, my repetitive behavior was watching the same TV shows at the same time Saturday morning cartoons, I could tell you which cartoon came after the next one. And a lot of times, too, the main things that make autism people autistic is a lot of times we like to have our routines and we like to um, have our sensory issues. Um, We don't like um, certain smells or we don't like certain sounds. And we like to have the environment be kind of consistent with what our sensory input can take. And that's how I define autism. It's a different way of interpreting information, but it's not necessarily 
bad or good. It's neutral, but it's how we, if we're able to adapt to it, comes something beautiful because then we can be able to do unique things that other people aren't able to do. Very interesting. So it's just a different way of interpreting information. And I believe it's a, it's officially a disorder. Am I right about that? Is it ASD? Yeah, autism spectrum disorder. And the reason they okay. call it a disorder is that we have some huge mountaintop abilities. So you have people who can, like me, um, memorize over 15,000 Bible verses. But at the same time, you'll have someone who can do great, amazing artwork that can sell for $15,000 a painting, but at the same time, that same person who did that artwork is unable to tie their shoe or maybe unable to communicate their needs. So I like to say instead of high-functioning autism and low-functioning, I like to say higher needs autism and lesser needs autism. So higher needs autism means that they have more challenges. Less needs autism means that they there's less um, accommodations that they need in their life. So you're not that, labeling them, but you're looking yeah. at their needs so you can provide for their needs. Interesting. That's, that's, that's really that's, that's interesting to hear your perspective on that. Did you have some special interests as a child? You just talked about, you know, the memorization, but I'm just wondering, um, you mentioned, you know, um, you know, you knowing the cartoons and things like that. But how did that develop for you over time? Your so my first special interest was animals. My mom would buy me, and they had them in the 80s. You can't get them anymore, safari cards. And they had animals from Africa, animals from Australia, animals from Asia. And each month you get um, 10 new cards, and I used to memorize all the stats where the animal was found what their environment was like, what their eating habits were. And that was one of my first special interests. My mom would have me draw pictures of the animals, and then she'd have me tell stories about the animals, write them down. I'd rewrite down the story after she did, and that helped me overcome dyslexia because I was learning the way my brain processes information visually rather than learning phonetically. I couldn't learn anything phonetically if I heard or ba, I couldn't distinguish those. And even to this day, any name, I have a very difficult time pronouncing it. I had a coworker who used to always ask me to say the name of the guy from Hangover, Mark, and I, I'd, every time I'd say the name, I'd say it differently. But with me, my mm. special interest changed over time. So it went from animals from age one to seven to a specific animal, prairie dogs, and when I was seven years old, my mom got me prairie pups. Prairie pups met more celebrities than anyone I've ever known. He's met Muhammad Ali, Kurt Armstrong, from mm-hmm. the guy they call Booger. He's been from everywhere mm-hmm. from Israel to Madagascar. So I take him everywhere. And then as I got older, my special interest, when prairie pups became the first prairie dog um, officially, expelled from the Rochester public school systems when I was 16 years old, it became track and cross country. And I became one of the best track runners for a half mile in Michigan. And and then it went from track to cross country. My senior year into college, it began to be theology. And then from theology, doing speaking events. And now I have a new friend for Prairie Pup, the Honey Badger. And he's one of my new special interest and I like to say my daughter got more toys 
than any kid because I had a man <laughs> cave filled with the toys that I collected as a kid, and it with autism we keep them in boxes like the 40-year-old virgin played by Steve Carell. So she got a lot of toys, and then whenever she has a bad day the other day, um, she started crying because we were in a hurry to get out, and she said, Mommy didn't kiss me and hug me. So when we got to the house, my parents' house, to drop her off for school, I opened the door and I said, pick out a toy. And she went right to her favorite toys and took one out from the 80s. It was never opened until now. That's so funny. How old is your daughter, Ron? She's five years old. I know she's not on the spectrum because her first words were okay. They weren't no, no. <laughs> that's funny. I mean, I don't mean to laugh and say that that's funny, but that that's yeah. That's really it that that's funny. interesting that you say that, and it's it's interesting that you're talking about your um, prairie pups too because um, I think you learned a lot with that prairie pups. Um, I, I guess I, I'd be curious to know how did your parents, your mom and your dad, how did they help you to adjust to your sensory issues? The main way they helped me adjust to my sensory issues is they exposed me to different sensory issues. I remember when I was four years old, before they knew what autism was, they knew that I was very sensitive to light and very sensitive to to um, certain sounds and sights. And they took me to a Maxwell Smart. And for you younger audiences, Maxwell Smart is the voice of the inspector gadget. Go, gadget, go. And I was about to go. When I went to that movie, I went to the movie Naked Bomb. It was PG, so don't worry. You don't have to call Child Protective Services for an event that happened in 1982. So what happened in the movie, right before the movie began, there was this glove, and it kept getting bigger and bigger, and it exploded. And when the glove exploded, I went running throughout the whole movie movie theater, screaming, top of my lungs. It took my mom a half an hour in the dark trying to, jump over seats to get me out of there. But they decided then that they weren't going to not expose me to movie theaters because of that, but they'd take me to places where i get different sensory issues in it, even if I had a meltdown, that I'd learn from those, I'd interact with the people around me, I'd learn how to imitate the people around me, and over time those sensory issues would decrease so I'd be able to be out in public, and that's what ended up happening. It's like I say this, is it? There's one reason big boys still exist, and there's one reason KFC still exists. As people get older, their sense of taste goes down. So that secret colonel's recipe is they take out special ingredients and make it a little bit cheaper to keep with the market. People who are eating those, their taste buds go down. So they're able to adjust to that, and they still buy that food. And that's how my sensory issues have been, is that years went by, they've gone down much more. When I was in third grade, I beat up a clown when he took the hat off my head and put it on another kid's head. But I've learned since then to be able to adjust to people touching me on the back or touching my hair. And I have mm-hmm. now work in the mental health field, so all the time you'll have someone tap you on the shoulder or you'll hear a loud noise or different noise. I like to say that if I took some of the noise I hear at work and put them on a CD, it'd be one of the best-selling Halloween um, <laughs> CDs out there for the haunted house. That's funny. 
that that's any so you mentioned I, I i love i love everything you're saying i i can as a parent i can actually relate to some of this that while my son isn't on the spectrum and wasn't ever diagnosed there were certainly um habitual things that he did habitual like he always picked up the yellow car this yellow matchbook car with his right hand and the green one with his left hand and if you held it out to him and you wanted to sort of test him there was never a mistake he would always do that and we're talking about you know 45 years ago and and you just brought that thought back up to my mind you mentioned honey badger and i don't know what honey badger means so why don't you tell us about honey badger moments so I got my first honey badger on my honeymoon, and I was we went to the Windy City, Chicago, and I saw in a big open window play of these honey badgers, and it was love at first sight. He growled at me. I growled back. I went in there and bought him. And the honey badger I bought, not knowing at the time I bought him, but when you press his paw, every F-bomb in the book comes out. So I never bring him when I do my public <laughs> speaking. I got a declaw to Amazon honey badger and i got now about six or seven different stuffed animals of honey badger one even handmade from the uk that someone got me and what my honey badger moments are is like that honey badger the first one a honey badger doesn't give up he's very persistent and when i have a meltdown i lose all sense of control all ability to calm down and i'll destroy anything in my war path and with a honey badger it's different than a mongoose. A mongoose will go after a cobra, but it will be real slick and real stealth, and it will make sure the cobra doesn't fight it before it kills the cobra and eats it. But a honey badger, it doesn't give us. And there's an F-bomb that goes with that, with the video and the risk voice, the master YouTube um, video. But a honey badger hmm. will just keep walking at that cobra to him, and it will grab the cobra, bright its head off, then for the next two days, the honey badger's going to be in a coma from all the poison. But then when it wakes up, it's ready for its snack and will eat the cobra. And that's how my meltdowns were is that I lost total control. Like the honey badger, after being bit ten times by the cobra, it just melts down, sleeps. And But when I get up again, then I'm ready to go again. And that's why I call my meltdowns my honey badger moments. Because there's you, nothing that can stop me when I have one of those moments as a child. As a child. i got to tell you, living on the West Coast, honestly, I'd never even heard of a honey badger. I didn't even know what that was. And so now I understand that it, first of all, is truly a real animal, that yours was yeah. a stuffed animal, just like yeah. your um, other animal, your prairie pup, your prairie pup, was a stuffed animal and it sounds like you had a lot of stuffed animals did they also did your did your did they i i I presume just by what you just shared that when you would have these meltdowns but did they bring you comfort as well did you did you wrap yourself is that right a prairie dog i carried everywhere and if i couldn't find them i'd have a meltdown or i'd be very upset and i still have the prairie dog now He's um, over 30 years old, almost all his fur is gone. And I still, every country I go to, I've been to about 12 different countries, 
every country I buy a unique animal from that country for my collection. I have animals from all over the world that people have sent me or given me, and um, I have a whole collection in my man cave. When I move to Tampa, we're going to keep the man cave in Michigan, and then um, I'll keep all those things there. I have over 5,000 books in my man cave and um, items and um, souvenirs from all over the world. Wow. That's so, that's so wonderful. That's, that's so, that is, I love hearing that because I know just, just in the volume and the way you're speaking, I can tell how meaningful that is to you. I mean, I really do hear it. And it's, it's interesting for all of us how sometimes, whether it's, something as physical as a stuffed animal that you just described or a photo or maybe it's uh, a smell or a taste or, I mean, when I see a certain bird, I'm telling you, Ron, when I see a certain bird and it's called, um, oh, my goodness, what I just, um, I just lost the name of this bird. When I see this certain bird, I always think of my husband when I see a hummingbird. Yeah, and it's called nostalgia. Yes, and there's and that's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. It it, it is. And it's when, a um, it's Mikhail a beautiful was thing. Born, they were, yeah, when Mikhail was born, they tried to turn my mad cave at my parents' house in the nursery and autism one, and they weren't able to turn it into a nursery. Right, because. They could. So their guest room became the nursery. <laughs> That's funny. So you mentioned your dad. Um, you're highly educated. Um, and I want to know, how did your dad, you know, moms are just sort of there, you know, where they're, they're that nurturing yeah. person. But how did your dad empower you for your future employment? So what he did is from a very early age, he had me working. I had my first job mowing our lawn. We had an acre yard, and he'd make me mow it with a pushing lawnmower. It was um, not self-propelled. It was um, mm-hmm. manual. So, or mm-hmm. Not manual, but you had to push it yourself. And then right. he had me working my first job at Bill Knapp's, which we call God's Waiting Room, because the ancient clientele who ate at Bill Knapp's, and also on your birthday they gave you a chocolate cake, and you got a discount based on how old you were. So if people were 80, they said, I'll get 80% discount, and I'll go to Bell Naps. And he always had me working a job, and then when I was in between jobs, he'd be always asking at church if people had work that needed to be done or needed to hire someone to do work at their restaurant or work at their um, flower shop. So I always had gainful employment because he always made sure that I had a job. And then when I'd come home for the summer while I was in college, He'd always go around, talk to people at places where he was buying items or getting groceries and find out where they were hiring. So as soon as I came back, he had waiting on my bed job application, so I was able to get a job very quickly when I came home for college for the two months or three months. That's really interesting. And you went away to college. You know, that for for a lot of people. 900 miles. How many? 900 miles, 930 Nine, miles to Tulsa, Oklahoma from here. Wow. I mean, that 
that's a big adjustment for anyone, anyone. And that was courageous um, to be able to do that. I think it's courageous. And um, I applaud your, your parents for having the fortitude to say he can do this. We know yeah, he can do this. Yeah, but what my dad did, too, that really helped out is that What's college that? weekend, he flew out there with me to college weekend. He had me meet all the professors. He had me just go where the resource learning center was so I knew where I could get help if I was having trouble with tests or papers. And he took me to all the different um, classrooms where they'd be. And then when my when I began my freshman year, he again flew out to Tulsa, Oklahoma with me. He um, watched me sign up for my classes, helped me meet who the resident advisor was, who the chaplain on the floor was. So I knew the leadership on my floor, who to go to for help. And he took me to each one of the classes once I had them signed up so I knew exactly where the classes were, where the cafeteria was, where everything was. So, And he found um, students, introduced me to him who helped me out and, and told him that I was away from home for the first time and I might need help knowing where things are. And he made sure that he found people who had cars so I could go off campus and be able to hang out with the people. Mm-hmm. And that helped out a lot. I bet. And you were, and because your memory is so exceptional, once you learned it, you had it, didn't you? Yeah, I always had what I learned, I, and I that, picked it up. It took me longer to pick it up. What I tell people is, I it takes me longer to learn something, but once I learn it, I become the best at it in the world, and I can get it done very quickly. That's so remarkable. And, you know, we haven't talked about this, and I'm, I'm just curious if you even want to talk about this. But I, I know from previous um, shows I've done about autism, there are varying, rela- um, um, con- uh, I, don't, I don't want to say condition, but abilities maybe I should say would be a better way of saying this for people that are what you hear with quotes on the spectrum, right? from those that yeah. really can't speak to, to people like yourself who get in front of huge audiences. I mean, you're a pastor. You get in front of a lot of people and speak. Is, yeah, 6,500 in one audience. Wow. Do you talk about that? Do you talk about the different levels on the spectrum? Is that an important part of this discussion when we talk about autism, or is it really not Yeah, I think important? it is because a lot of times people – view autism in two ways, and they're the two extremes. They have the rain man, person who's stuck in his own little world, who any sound like a fire alarm has a meltdown, who instantly can tell you that there's 146 toothpicks on the ground, and when they look in the box, there's four in the box that makes 150. So there's that view as a the, um, high need functioning autism, where they have a, a lot of needs they meet made met, whether it's sensory issues, they're not able to take care of themselves like Raymond. Then there's the other view is um, the Forrest Gump, someone who's um, able to tell their whole life story in two hours and 30 minutes sitting on a bench. And I think that a lot of times people picture those two types. And one of the most famous things that people get with autism, I was just on the radio with um, Anthony Ioni on um, 
a couple of days ago on a Friday, and he said that this too is he said um, one of the main ways people or Thursday is the way they see autism. They'll say to him, "You don't look autistic. You're six foot nine. You played in a Final Four. How can you be autistic? You must not be autistic." And we, me and him get that all the time. I have a lot of people say to me, "You don't look autistic," or um, "I didn't know you were on the autism spectrum." Mm-hmm. Because it's, they have it's, it's, those two main views. So when people talk about the term Asperger's, is that is, is that sort of not what people say any longer? Is that not um, um, a, an autism term any longer? Is, is that really not? I mean, I'm hearing you say the highly highly functioning and the and the low functioning. Is Asperger's not something that people talk about anymore when they refer to autism? No, they still refer to it, and it's still on the spectrum, but it's all one okay. spectrum. It's not okay. individual. And the, it needs to be on the, the spectrum because of this. Is it Probably about 70% of people with Asperger's are underemployed or unemployed. So it, the DSM says if it affects your ability for relationship, employment, or regular life, then you have a diagnosis. So if um, 70% of people with Asperger's are struggling with employment, are struggling with relationships, and struggling with um, mental health issues too, then we need that diagnosis so they can get the accommodations that they need. And that's why people still talk about Asperger's and, and put it on the autism spectrum. And Asperger's on the autism spectrum because, you, again, you have that sensory issues. You have with people with Asperger's, you have the routine that they love to follow their own routine and that a lot of times they don't understand social interaction the same as everyone else on the autism spectrum. It's just that there some things they're able to do, um, I don't want to say better, but are able to do um, that people, other people with autism who have higher needs aren't able to do, like drive or um, be able to maintain a job. So that's why it's important. Okay because they're still not usually at the same level of employment or level of relationship statistically as people not on the spectrum. Got it. That's interesting. And you and you you come to this you you I mean talk about a man with a bunch of hats. You're also in the mental health world, aren't you? Yeah, I work full-time Havenwick Hospital. I've been there 13 and a half years and um I also work as a professor of theology at Destiny School of Ministry. I've been there 20 years, and what's good with COVID caused Destiny Ministry School to be on Zoom and online, so I'm able to continue to teach during the COVID season, and when I move out to Tampa, I'll be able to continue to be a professor doing them online, my lessons. Wonderful. Man, what do you do? What do you do specifically at the hospital as a mental health worker? What What are your um, uh, responsibilities there? So I work as a um, psychiatric care specialist. My main duty is taking care of the patient's needs and helping the nurses out as a nurse's tech. And um, every day I do a 30-minute um, presentation or message on some mental health issue like developing a hope complex or self-care, health and well-being, or um, becoming a self-advocate for mental health. 
And then um, we also do rounds. We have to know where all the patients are every 15 minutes, and you do about two sets of rounds, and then you get to spend time with the patients, get to counsel them, talk to them, and share better ways of um, handling their depression or better ways of handling the issues that they have in their life, working one-on-one with the patient. Wonderful. I should just mention now, Ron, and and it will certainly be included in my follow-up blog when I um, write about this show today, but Ron does have um, a website. It's called spectruminclusion.com. Inclusion is spelled I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O-N. And you can see Ron there, and his books are there, and you can certainly purchase his books there, and you can read more about him. Because I just find you personally so interesting, so interesting what you do, what you love, why you do it. Um, I, I, I just, I'm, I'm so enjoying this. And, and you mentioned um, about some of the challenges and the learning challenges. And, and you talked about cross the, the track and cross country. Tell us more about what happened in 1995 in your senior year when you were, when you were on, on your high school team. What happened then? So in 1994, my relay team finished 12th in the state of Michigan for the 3,200 relay. I was one of the fastest 800-mile runners. And on the way back from the state finals, Nate Clay, the anchor, said next year will be the fastest relay in the in the state of Michigan for the 3,200, but we won't have Ron on our relay because it will be past the age limit because I was filled back in kindergarten due to autism. Right then I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, I'll provide a way for you. I'll make it so you can run on the track team. And right then I told Coach Fudd and Nate Clay, next year I'm going to run on the track team. And the coach laughed and said in the last 20 years, no one has been able to compete past the age limit for high school sports in the state of Michigan. And I said, I know it's going to happen. I don't know how. My mom, being a great advocate, as I mentioned earlier, she called every lawyer in the state of Michigan. They all said the same thing. It would cost over $40,000 for an Americans with Disabilities case. We won't take it. I came back, and my parents said, you just got to pray and trust God, and God will provide a way for you to be on the track team. Five-mile run, and the season was just about to begin. And there on the front page of Detroit Free Press was a man named Craig Stanley. He was born May 1975, same year, same month. He um, ran track and cross country, just as I did, and he had a learning disability. And the Michigan High School Athletic Association told him he couldn't compete. So my mom called Mrs. Stanley, and we got together the – the, the Stanley family, and I said, next year, Craig, or this year, Craig Stanley and I are going to compete on the track team. God showed me it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. So my mom said, let's do a second article in the Detroit Free Press sharing that there's now two young men whose civil rights are being violated. That Wednesday, the Detroit Free Press had me and Craig Stanley on the front page of the Detroit Free Press, and um, that Sunday I was getting water baptized, and as I came out of the water, the minister said, I normally don't give someone a, a word from God, but I know God spoke to me very clearly. I saw this verse, come, or the, the sky open up right when you came out of the water with Joel 2.25. I repaid the earth the locusts eaten. Great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts, oak swarm. said, when the Israelites were in rebellion and God repaid those with blessings, he said, today a blessing is going to begin for you. 
It was 9 a.m. when I got out of the water, and when I got home, we had those archaic answering machines. Ours was the size <laughs> of a VCR, and it was blinking red. And when I pressed this button, up came the time of the call. It was 9 a.m., and it began this way. Hi, my name's Rick Landel. I just got my Ph.D. from Boston College. I did my law degree from the University of Michigan, and I'm just starting out, and I want to take Ron's case pro bono. All I need is a signature. So I signed on. He took my case. We end up running the second fastest time in the state of Michigan. I got full rides, but the story doesn't end there. When I wrote my first book, Appearance Guide Autism, Practical Advice, Biblical Wisdom, I interviewed 40 of the top people in the autism field, and I interviewed a man named Gary Marison, who's on the board of directors for Autism Speak. And um, when I interviewed him, he told me, I'm going to tell you the ending of all your presentations and the ending of your book, because you're going to share the story of Anthony Sturgill. Anthony Sturgill was a football player. He um, loved football. His favorite quote is, I'm going to play football. I'm going to play football. But his second senior year, the New Jersey High School Athletic Association said, you're not going to play football. And he came and said, I'm going to play football. I'm going to play football. And he was an excellent football place kicker. His dad called Gary Marison. Gary Marison said, let me look up if there's any president setting cases. And there he found it in Michigan in 1995, Sanderson versus the MHSA. Took Anthony's case. They won. And he told me, that's the reason I'm letting you interview me today. And it was a blessing to know that my case even today is still having impact on people's lives. Wow. What did that make you feel like? It felt great knowing that people are, today, the um, trailblazing I had to do back then, now there's a path for people to follow, and it's not as hard for them to get their rights met. And it shows, too, that people need to stand up for their rights. When someone tries to take away your right or tell you you have to do something, all it takes is one person standing up saying, I'm a minority, and you, we've been oppressed enough by telling us as a minorities we have to do this and we're going to do what we feel is best for us and um, I think today a lot of people are afraid to speak up I talk mm-hmm. to people with the whole COVID and everything going on in the world and a lot of people are afraid to stand up but it all it takes for evil to reign men and women to not do anything you know I, I'm I'm listening to you and I'm I'm coming from the perspective of a parent, and I'm thinking about your mom and your dad, and it just seems like they could write probably an incredible book themselves. I don't know if they've ever done that or if it's something that they would ever consider doing, and I think it would be interesting to include your brother in that. You know, growing up Sanderson, I, I mean... I, yeah. could, I could just I could see the title of it already, you know. I I think that it it is just it's so inspiring, and I know I've used that word multiple times here, but for somebody that's listening, that may have a a, a son, a daughter, a grandson, a granddaughter, a niece, a nephew, a neighbor, that didn't really know and maybe felt a little bit 
fearful, like, well, I, I, I'm not sure. How do I, how do I speak with them? But what, what, will, what can I expect? And I'm going to be honest with you, Ron. That's exactly what went through my mind the very first time I had a guest when I was in the studio. So I was not only audio, I was visual. And I had Kobe Bird, who was a 14-year-old young man, on my show. And he loved to sing. And he was part of the Wallace Annenberg Performing Arts Center here in Los Angeles. And this kid wanted to be on Broadway. That's what he wanted. And as I went out to the, um, because I had music in those days, Kobe would sing. And when the music brought us back in from a commercial, oh, Kobe kept singing. Kobe knew all the words. Kobe could sing. Kobe could dance. Kobe could perform. Kobe became an actor. Kobe is still acting. He, he goes to uh, Toronto. Lock and Key, I believe, is the name of the program. He is like a hero to me. I so enjoy following him on social media because he's inspiring. And it's not, it's not a sentence where you can't succeed. Look at what you've done. Look at what you've done. I, I am just, I'm so, I'm so in awe, and I know you don't say that for me to be in awe because I also know you are very humble. You are a very humble man, and um, I know that about you as well. And, and your ministry has really taken off, hasn't it? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to begin a new ministry soon in Tampa, working with Full Spectrum ABA, and it's going to be, I'm going to set up a, the first autism ministry school for individuals with autism where they can learn, take theology class and take Bible class and learn how to disciple class, and they'll have a Bible study every week, and then they'll have lessons and um, different classes they can take, like Christology and um, New Testament and Old Testament. So they'll be able to learn about the Bible and all the different events in the Bible mm-hmm. in a classroom-type setting online. So it's a very exciting, innovative time period. Yes, indeed. I'm, I'm curious. I'm a people person. So this, I am curious about this because we have mentioned that you're married with a child. So how did you meet your wife? So I met my wife on an online dating service. There's plenty of fish. If there was plenty of squid, I'd still be single. And um, I met her <laughs> um, 10 years ago. And then it's funny, on our first date, um, we met up for And then when we got engaged, I went back to the same coffee shop where we met in Royal Oak and then proposed to her. And then we got married a year and a half later. So now we've, December 7th will mark nine years of marriage. And um, we've been together for... 11 years now. Nice. So, but it took learning those different social skills to be able to um, be able to get to a point where I was ready to get married. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's lovely. And, you know, I'm sorry. I, I know exactly where Royal Oak is. Okay. So about your book, I, who inspired you to actually become an author? I feel like I know, I'm know i going to know the answer to this, but you tell me. Where did that inspiration come for you to become an author? So the inspiration came from my grandma Olmstead. She was a 
famous murder mystery writer. Her and my grandpa um, did over 100 plays during their lifetime. They did ones in Toronto. They did ones at the Dearborn Inn, and they're just um, getting rid of the Dearborn Inn. They did ones Mm -hmm. at Weber, which is um, in Ann Arbor, a very famous um, restaurant. And they, what they do is they do their murder mysteries like the game Clue, because it was the 80s. So you had to figure out who the murder was, where the murder occurred, and when it occurred. And um, my grandma published three books. The two were murder mysteries, one that was a children's book about Santa Claus. And she became so well-known that she was on Good Morning America, and Reed wow. is referred to as a homicide grandma. So she was all of an inspiration. And I went to only one of her plays. It was on my birthday, and um, I was about eight years old at the time, and I had low blood sugar at the time, and I didn't eat any food. And it was in the Dearborn Inn, and I passed out because the food was going to be served later on. So I missed seeing any of her plays live. Aww. And then later on, a company hired me to come out and speak at the Dearborn Inn in the very room where I passed out 30-plus um, years earlier. It was kind of ironic. Very, very ironic. Uh, but I knew, I, my mom said, you know you're a success when you start speaking at Weber's Inn and Frankenmuth and speaking oh, in the very God. places where your grandma did her play. Oh, my God. I know exactly where Weber's Inn is and Frankenmuth. Wow. Um, okay. Wow. I, you're, you're taking me on a path because my husband, as you know, was born in Detroit. And yeah. I spent a lot of time in Detroit, not in Detroit, Detroit. I mean, actually, he was born in Hamtramck, frankly. But um, and I've spoken there too. Oh gosh, I, it's just this ADA is just Center for Ford there. Oh my goodness! And both of his parents, one worked for Chrysler, one worked for Ford. Yeah. What challenges? I, I'm sorry, I keep bringing this back to me. I don't mean to do that, but you're just you're just bringing you're bringing a goosebumps to my body. Um, what yeah. challenges do you experience as a dad as a dad with autism? Do is is are there challenges for you? Because how old is your daughter? Did you say? She's five years old. Five. Yes. And five. I think one of the main challenges is change in routine because um, having a daughter now. Um, I I have a total change in routine um, from um, everything from having her, having her friends over to the house and a lot of noise in the apartment, things like that, to um, just um, when I have food set aside, um, her taking, at five years old, she's found out she can use little stepladders and get in my candy collection. So she'll take the (laughs) stepladder, climb up the bookcase and grab where my candy's up. So I think a lot of the main challenge is just the different sounds in the house, having a kid, um, having to um, take time out when she needs something. But she's very good, and um, she's um, able to adjust to her dad's needs, which is good. That is good. At a young age. That is, that's, that's, that's excellent. So, and she goes to my before, speaking engagements. She's two years old. She, she came up on the stage and started cleaning the stage in front of, or 2,000 people church. 
Oh gosh, so she's not shy. That's pretty cool. No. That obviously that that's because you empowered her to be who she is. So let's not mistake yeah. that. That that she is who she is because of you and your wife. So congratulations. Um Thanks. I truly and you're welcome. There if there were three lessons and I know that this you know, but I'm curious. If there were three lessons that you would love to share with young adults with autism, can you tell me what those three lessons would be? Yeah, the first one is never give up. By perseverance, the snail made it on the ark. And what I like to share is that no matter how slow you are, you can be as slow as a snail. If you keep moving in the right direction, you're going to get on the ark. Number two is this, take advantage of every opportunity. Because a lot of times when you have autism, you don't get as many opportunities. And if you can learn healthy risk versus dangerous risk and learn how to take healthy risk, you'll be successful. The most greatest resource of untapped potential is the grave. There's songs that were never sung in that grave. There's music that will never be played in that grave. There's books that will never be written. There's athletes who will never stand Michael Jordan because they didn't take those risks. And I think that that's the second one is learn healthy risk-taking. And the third one is this, don't take life too serious. They did a study of people who live the longest. It wasn't the people who exercised the most. It wasn't the people who had the most money. What they found is it was people who said they took life as it came to them and they were able to adapt to it, and they never took life too serious. So they didn't get the high blood pressure. And with autism, a lot of times we take things super serious. If we don't, if our routines change, it's the end of the world. We have a catastrophe mindset when we think about moving to Tampa or we think about going to college. We think of the worst case scenario of things that would never happen, but yet we become fixated on those. I had a young adult that I was working with from um, college because he thought he plagiarized because he forgot to give a reference note to one of the um, things he used in his paper. And that's a catastrophe mindset, and it's very common mm-hmm. with people with autism. Interesting. It's interesting. You know, I, I, I think that what, I, what I'm also hearing from you when you're talking about um, – this advice to young adults with autism, frankly, Ron, I'm not a young adult with autism. I, I'm, I could be your mother, all right? I'm in of that age yeah. category. And yet just listening to the three that you described to never give up, you know what I hear when you said that? Never give up, never give up, never give up yeah. the ship. Right, I don't even know what I don't even remember what that's from, but that's what I heard in my head. Um, yeah. And and because because you said it doesn't matter, don't give up. And then when you said to take advantage of every opportunity, that can apply to anyone that's listening. Your eyes yeah. have to be open to it. If you are walking around with blinders you are not going to even know that an opportunity is knocking on your door. So take advantage of it. And I would also go on to say that when you talked about learning a healthy risk 
versus a dangerous risk? Healthy risks. I think I do that all the time. I, I mean, yeah, choosing I, a I, different meal know, to restaurants a healthy risk. There you go. There you go. And then not to take life too serious. Boy, oh boy, is that ever? That is that's a mindset for those of us that that bring yoga into our lives and and practice mindfulness without judgment and to try not to take life so serious even if you have to say it out loud you're really taking this too serious marcia back up a little bit come on now so i think that this message that you're giving young adults that are autistic can be applied to every single person that is listening today but i appreciate don't i'm not underestimating what you're saying it's even more vital for that autistic young adult, isn't it? Yeah, because a lot of times with autism, we do things to the extreme. We take extreme risk, and then there's things you should take risk, and we're too afraid, too afraid to do those healthy risks. Or we um, see life is um, out of control, and we have a hopeless complex. Rather than seeing that tomorrow the sun will rise again, life will go on, we're not in control of our destiny. Yes. Wow. Um, when you you mentioned in the last few minutes, I thought we could just talk about this and go back to your book a little bit, which is, um, although I, I, I know you're writing another book, but why don't you just tell us about the new book that you're writing, and then I want to ask you one more question about this this last book. So when when you're, you said you're working on this book now, do you have a title for it? Yes, it's um, tentatively, which every book I've ever written comes up with a different title when the publisher, because the publisher chooses the title. It's sure. Autism, Growth, and Transitioning into Adulthood, and it's to know, to transition from adolescence into adulthood. Chapters Wonderful. like um, leaving the nest, going to college, employment, interviewing, um, risky business, decisions and consequences, and um, health and well-being. So it looks at all the major things a person's going to need to be able to transition in adulthood and then how to develop those. And what makes the book unique is I share 12 very successful, well-known people on the autism spectrum, everything from a man who sold his business for $4 million to professional actresses like Kay Anderson to people who have started um businesses that help people on the autism spectrum, like Brewability. I shared a story of the lady who found it. She's not autistic, but she founded a business to help people with autism. And then at the end of the chapter, you have the story. Then you have also reflective questions, so it can be used in a group setting. And then finally, you have a group activity to learn those in a way that the autistic mind can learn by doing. So you have a hmm. book that um, hooks the person in to getting the information, book, the content, and then took. They're they able to come away from the, the book with taking out from each chapter. They'll do a fun activity in a group, and they'll learn from it and remember it. That's terrific. When do you hope that will be released? Do you have an idea? I hope to have it finished by the new year. And then most books with traditional publishers, which will be tra- traditionally published, take a year to a year and a half to get out. 
so it takes a Okey long time. Dokey. But then after this, with the new company I'll be working with, they'll have their own publisher, and then I'll mm. be able to get books out in three months. So that's one good thing, and I'll be able to do more writing, knock on wood, hopefully, yes. than I'm able to do right now. That's that's terrific. Because I terrific. Have to do all the hospital work. That that that's really that's terrific, and you know I oftentimes um, Ron have repeat guests, and um, this would be wonderful to talk about when that when that next when that next book is released because just the chapters alone sound so um, relevant. I guess is what I would say. Um, it sounds like you have a really full life. Um, between yeah. your being a pastor, between being a husband and a dad, between being a mental health professional, it, I'm just just sort of curious about this. I I know that my life is productive, and I mentioned that I do yoga. Is there something that you do that's just for you? That's just a self care self care, I should say, Ron time. Is there is there that Ron time for you? Yeah, so every day I get when I get off work, I do my two hours of memory work. I go over the verses I memorize, and I all fifteen thousand I'll go over once every month, everyone. And then in the morning when I get to work, I get a half hour early, and I do memory work in my car for a half hour, going over new verses I'm memorizing, and I enjoy learning. Interesting, and you, and I I know what you memorize is. Enormous, isn't it? Yes, a large amount of information, quotes, um, everything from um, Old Testament to New Testament to inspiring quotes by people. Mm-hmm. Will you? So, when you stand on the pulpit um, in your new location, because you're going to be a minister there, um, and tell me again where what the name of that ministry is going to be in Tampa? Would you Would you mind? So it's going to be working with Bulls ABA, and then the ministry is, um, we don't have a title yet. Okay. Working. It's probably going to be Full Spectrum Bible Studies or Full Spectrum um, Autism Ministry School. Or we're still working on the visions and the kinks. We'll get all that out. And then um, we're also going to work on putting together through that book, Autism Growth and Transitioning Adulthood, a video series that's 12 videos about an hour hour and a half each teaching those skills and then that will be in the full or, or in the um autism spectrum inclusion um so that's a, a, my nonprofit that helps autism young adults get employed and um get connected with mentors and things like that that's terrific and i i'm really glad you mentioned that because on your website um, there is some discussion about that, and I know that that you're doing whatever you can to help others. And um, and I just, you are a marvelous person, and I and like I said, okay. and a humble person. And 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 you're welcome to say thank you, but I I I think that you you probably know just based on what it is that you do, and maybe talking to parents that have children that were your age at one time and what what your parents went through, what your mom and dad went through, what your college professors went through, what your faith means to you. Um, you are 
you are that resource. And I, I feel privileged to have had you join me today on the show. And I will make sure that um, um, our, my listeners know about how to find you, how to find your books, and, and frankly, how to contact you. I, I don't know. Are you contactable? Can people reach out to you if they want? Yeah. So if they Perfect. want to reach out to me, they can go to Sanderson, S-A-N-D-I-S-O-N, 456 at com. And my newest book, Views from the Spectrum, A Window into the Life and Faith of a Neurodivergent Child, they can get on Amazon or they can get it in any Barnes and Nobles or um, stores where books are carried. So it's nationally so, published books. And then, fun, phenom- so you just gave your email address, didn't you? Yeah, I always give it out. Yep. You and know I something? Answer every email. You know something? Thank you for saying that. That was very. I would never have done that otherwise. I would not have realized that you would um, allow me to do that. And so I'm so grateful that I asked you that question. That people can reach you through your hotmail. Um, email address because maybe somebody really does want to know more and the fact that you are being so generous um, I'll make sure that they know that it's sanderson456 at hotmail.com and I will certainly include that as well so I know you're in the hospital now I know that you have lots to do and I don't want to hold you up from doing that thank you for this trip down Michigan Lane because frankly that was really that was really um, nice for me to hear some familiar sounding words and I just I wish you all the best as you move on to Tampa it's going to be certainly a lot different than being in Michigan isn't it my goodness but I I wish you yeah well yes you might have to play with an occasional hurricane but you'll deal with it and um and I I just thank you so so much again for for being a part of this of this show with me today, Ron. It was it was an honor. Oh, thanks so much. It was a great being on here, and it was an honor on my part too. Okay, bye everybody. I'm going to let Ron get back to work, and I'll be back with you again next week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye for now.